Well, it's a real privilege to be here. <clears throat> I see lots of familiar faces. It's so good to, to see you, and I hope we can connect maybe afterwards. Um, and lots of new faces, too. I'm just so encouraged to see Jesus fulfilling his promise in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. I'm just so encouraged by that. Well, the scripture that I'm going to be reading from today is out of the gospel of Mark. I actually forgot my paper Bible, so, <laughs> so I'm resorting to my digital Bible here. Same words. Um, this passage is from chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. I'll be reading from verses 21 through 43. It's kind of that last half of that chapter. Verse 21, hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you against you, his disciples answered. And yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We need your spirit to see the things you want us to see. We need your spirit to transform us more and more into the character and the likeness of Jesus. Lord, we want your word to speak to your people. Help me get out of the way. Help you, or we ask that you would, would reign supreme in the preaching and the receiving of your word. 
Be with us by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Gospel of Mark has a couple of very strong themes across the whole uh, book. One of them is the kingship of Jesus. And all through the Gospel of Mark, he presents Jesus as the king over all kinds of enemies and obstacles to his, his glory and his plan and his kingdom. And yet, the second theme is paradoxical and it's very strong in the Gospel of Mark, and it's the suffering of Jesus. So this is a king who has absolute power of, over all the realms of anything that stands against him, sickness, demons, uh, creation itself. He, he just says a word, and the, and the waves are stilled. And he even has power over death itself, calling people to life. And this is one of those stories. And yet... With all that power, he ends up on a cross by the end of the story. He's a suffering king. He lays down his life, life for his enemies. Now, we think of these stories a lot of times as two different stories. You have the story of Jairus. His daughter is dying, and he's just urgent, right? He's asking Jesus to come and place his hands on her, heal her, and then she dies. And on, on his way, you have the second story of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, uh, but really, these two stories are interwoven into one big story. And what I hope to show you today is that this story is, is not just showing the raw power of Jesus. It's not just showing that. He is powerful over sickness and death. We see that clearly. But Mark is telling us so much more. He's talking about what can it look like to have patience in the face of a messy and slow world we, all, all of us, struggle with impatience, right? All of us struggle. It shows up in different ways. I mean, just this morning, you know, my wife Michelle and I are getting ready. I was running late. I was a little bit frantic, you know, uh, and we're at the, at the sink in, in the bathroom there, and she had the top drawer open getting stuff out, and I had to get to the second drawer, and I couldn't get it. I said, I'm in a hurry, babe, <laughs> you know, and, but inside it's like, really? It takes this long, you know? Um, we all have moments like this, we get impatient, little ways, big ways. Sometimes, or some of us can express this, you know, we're, we're hotheads. We tend to, to express, you know, our impatience. Um, how many of you have actually yelled at a red light when you're in your car? I have. That's me. Usually when I'm alone, you know. Usually when I'm late to a meeting or something, I've yelled at red lights. I've yelled at cars in front of me that are turning too slow. I'm like, turn the car, right? We can relate to these kinds of things. Others of us are not hotheads. We have a low-level, sort of a simmering kind of impatience. We can grow resentful and, you know, withdraw over time, we'll grow a little bit cold and cynical. That can happen. Some of us have serious physical health complications or know people, loved ones, who are hurting. It could be chronic pain. It could be traumatic experiences. And we pray, we ask for God to bring relief, and it doesn't come. We can grow impatient. Sometimes we, we beg God for good and godly and kingdom things. Father, save my friend, my neighbor. We, we pray for the salvation of our kids, grandkids. We can get impatient oftentimes, and, and then we, we are wrestling and fighting with our sin, and many times we fail, we cave in, recurring patterns of sin. So how can we be patient in a messy and slow world? 
especially as relates to this text this morning, how can we be patient when it seems like God is being slow, when it seems like Jesus is not rushing to our aid and to our help? So we're going to see this question unfold in three uh, stages in our story. First, we're going to look at an urgent request. Second, Jesus's slow response. And third, a surprising outcome. So the urgent request, Jesus had just crossed the lake. Uh, this man named Jairus comes and begs Jesus, my, my daughter is dying. My girl is on the threshold of death. Come, place your hands on her and heal her. Okay, so you can imagine the sense of urgency that this dad has, right? He is a synagogue leader. So he's a Jew. He's a respected leader in this community. Uh, in this story, he's actually named most of the you know, miraculous stories in the Gospels, the people who, whom Jesus is interacting with are not named. He's named. I mean, he's important. And he's in a desperate situation. He cannot control this situation. Any of you parents, you know, uh, who have heard the cry, right, the scream, if you have young kids, um, or if you remember back when you had young kids, maybe, there are certain screams that you're like, okay, something's really wrong. I remember Trenton, my second son, coming in. He had broken his finger. They were goofing off on the back porch. Something had happened. Still don't know the whole story, right? That's kind of how it goes. Um, I considered throwing a picture up, but that, no. <laughs> it was bad. It's like tilted to the side. Uh, but, you know, like, you know, uh, ice. Okay, shoes on. Get in the car. Get to the hospital. There's a sense of urgency and that's nothing compared to what Jairus is dealing with here. Is it okay, though? Is it okay to, to beg God for things to change, for things to be different, for your friend to be healed? Is that okay to urgently ask God to do? It is. It really is. And when you look at the Psalms, for example, a third of the Psalms are laments. They are hard cries about this, about God, you know, the wicked are prospering and the righteous seem to be suffering. Do something about this. Or, God, you've abandoned me. Where are you? Do something. Come to my aid. Come quickly. We see this in Revelation 22. Uh, 22. These are the last two verses of the entire Bible. We see this. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Have you ever had that heart cry? Things are going wrong. Culture is getting weird. Come, Lord Jesus. We want him to, to hurry, you know? We want him to come. And that's good and right. It, it actually is an expression of faith. So when does righteous urgency turn into sinful impatience? There is a fine line, right? It really can turn into sinful impatience. Um, one way to define impatience is to, to live in a broken world and we expect, we expect this world to be like heaven now. And there's a disconnect. It's not heaven now. And we get upset, anxious, worried, angry, impatient. Christine Chapel is an author and a mom and she put it this way. Somewhere in our impatience is the passion we have to be served, to be in control, to be obeyed, to be like God. Pride is our biggest stumbling block to growing in patience. We know what this feels like, right? Um, 
Jerry Bridges talks about just how frustrating circumstances, they don't cause impatience. Rather, they merely provide an opportunity for the flesh to assert itself. The actual cause of our impatience lies within our own hearts and our own attitude of insisting that others around us conform to our expectations. Man, that is a, that's a harsh diagnosis of our hearts. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that's me. I struggle with wanting to be God. Now, I don't think of those words consciously, but when I look back, I see how I behave, how I react. It's in those moments, I, I'm upset that people didn't see me, notice me, obey me, well, you know, whatever. We all have those things. We want to be like God often. The, this is a mercy of God, right, to present life situations, circumstances that will surface our deep idolatries so that we have an opportunity to see them, name them, and repent of them. That's a mercy of God to expose our real hearts. And impatience is a, whether it's the sinful kind or the righteous kind, it's, it's, a, it's a sandbox, if you will. It's an opportunity to see the real me in a broken world so that I can take it to God and get some healing and get some help to be able to respond more like Jesus would respond. So this story invites us to put ourselves in this man's shoes and see what these idols are when they bubble up, right? And so this leads us to our first principle. You can think of this as a kind of application. God-centered patience consists of real lament in response to the brokenness we see and real hope for a better world and a better life. You see that that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a faith thing. But it does keep God and not self at the center. It trusts God's, trust in God's timing and in his ways, even when we don't understand. So here we have Jairus as a dad. I, I will do anything to get my daughter the help that she needs. He is urgent. He's asking Jesus to follow him. Okay, so we don't know how long it is, but he's close to the town where he lives. Uh, and you can imagine Jairus kind of leading the way, you know. Okay, this way, Jesus. All right, you said you'd come. Okay, and so they're off. They're walking toward his house. Every step that Jesus takes toward his daughter is a step of hope. And anything that would slow him down, that would distract him, that would get in his way, including crowds or whoever, whatever, would be a threat to Jairus. Oh, no, 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 don't slow down. Jesus, okay, this way. And you can imagine him kind of clearing the path ahead of him, right? He's in an urgent situation. In verse 30, he, something happens, and it's a threat to Jairus. It says, this, the second half of verse 30, he turns around in the crowd, and uh, Jesus turns around in the crowd and asks, who touched my clothes? The fact that Jesus turned around, remember, Jairus is out ahead a little bit, and he may, he may not have seen, he probably didn't see what was happening. All he knows is he turns around and he sees Jesus stopped. He's not walking. And it says Jesus turned around, so he, his back is now facing Jairus and his daughter. No, 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 Jesus, you're going the wrong way. You're no, it's this way, right? You see, they feel the confusion and the anxiety. From his perspective, all he sees is a threat to his daughter. Um, the disciples, of course, when Jesus asks, okay, who touched me? The disciples are also confused. They, they say in verse 31, you see the people crowded around you, and yet you ask, who touched me? Kind of a sarcastic, you know, um, response there from the disciples. But you can tell 
that everybody wanted Jesus to follow their agenda to get to this girl. And it was a good thing. It was a good agenda. It was a good goal. But they wanted him to do it in their timeline. And then, of course, the worst news comes. Verse 35, when Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Words cannot express the shock and the disorientation that's going on in his mind right now. His blood runs cold. His world is shattering in slow motion in this moment. He can't think rationally. He's probably going back and forth between denial and the painful reality that's stabbing his heart in this moment. As the reality of his daughter's death sinks in, he, you can imagine, he's probably condemning himself. Why wasn't I there? I left my wife to face this by herself. I'm not there for my kid and my wife. He probably also was asking, Jesus, why did you slow down? Why weren't you there? You were the only one who could have done anything about this. You had one job. You failed me. That's where he is. Some of us have been there, are there in some part of our lives. We're, we're struggling to understand where God was or is. Now look at the messenger's advice. He says, why bother the teacher anymore? So up to this point, Jesus had been characterized and pictured as someone who could really do something about this healing. And now the messenger is demoting Jesus to a mere teacher. You know, a teacher is actually very influential, can, can really change the course of, of students' lives, those that follow the teacher. But a teacher has limited power, can't heal the sick, can't call life out of death, can't overcome the ultimate enemies, okay, sin and death and Satan. And so the question that's confronting us in this moment, and, and the way that the story is being told is we're invited to linger in this tension. You know, there, there is, there's, not a, there's not a quick resolution right away. We're in this tension. Who are you really, Jesus? So he's called the teacher here, and a teacher is useful, can give good advice, but a teacher can't overcome death. If Jesus is merely a teacher in our lives, he can help us with things to live by, you know, principles to live by. He can help us uh, know the best way to navigate life. He can help us to uh, be encouraged and lifted up and face our, the giants in our lives. Whatever, you know, a teacher can do that, but he can't save us if he's not more than a teacher. And so we need a king who can overcome death. And so we have to ask ourselves, who is the Jesus that we're serving? So in verse 36, Jesus overhears them, and he told Jairus, he said, he looked at him and said, don't be afraid, just believe. Now you notice that Jesus did not tell Jairus in this moment, don't worry, I'm going to raise your daughter from the dead. He didn't say that. He said, don't be afraid, just believe believe. Jairus' biggest need in that moment is to trust Jesus in the pain, to trust Jesus in the unknown, to just trust Jesus when everything is falling apart. Trust Jesus in the tension of this, of not having a quick fix, but you've got Jesus. That's what Jesus is calling him to do. And so our 
Second principle here is regardless of whether Jesus shows up and fixes our brokenness right now or whether he does it later, he is still on the throne and he is still good. For, for who all are in Christ, a total reversal of death is coming. Therefore, we can trust him no matter what. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Now, we've got to rewind the tape a little bit, right? Jesus is distracted. Jairus is threatened, threatened, and his anxiety is through the roof. And then the devastating news. But let's rewind back to verse 26. So the woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So what do we know about this woman? We don't know her name. Jairus is named. This woman is not. Jairus is an important leader in the community. This woman is not. So there's, a, there's another subtle but definite theme here in this interconnected story that whether you're prominent in, in the front and people know you or whether you're a nobody suffering in the corner somewhere of society, Jesus sees you. He can help you. He can know you. All right? So be encouraged by that. But this woman has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. It's likely a uterine hemorrhage of some sort. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. So even the cures were hurting her. The doctors couldn't help her. She would go to people who, you know, ordinarily doctors can help. She would go to them and come away disappointed and worse off. This woman has been living with disappointment her entire life, or at least for the past 12 years. Chronic illness is such a debilitating condition. It's hard to even share the pain of that, right? Um, you don't want to burden your family members or friends with this. There's a shame factor involved in this kind of suffering. She had spent all she had. She was poor now. She was broke. What could she do? And so, and it's, it's worse than what we kind of see on the surface of the text. Back then, someone who was bleeding um, in this way was unclean. Uh, it had to go through a sort of a religious procedure to kind of recover from that and be absorbed back into society after that. She couldn't be near people. This is 12 years of this bleeding. She couldn't be near people. She couldn't go to public places. She couldn't go worship God in the temple. Anybody that she touched would become unclean. She was completely ostracized from society. She was likely unmarried. We're not sure of that. Um, she had not been touched for 12 years. She had not hugged anybody. She had not held a baby, probably. She couldn't go to family gatherings. She couldn't be around even her own family. No meals, nothing. Can you imagine? In those days, she would be considered to be among the living dead. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd. She touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. So, how do, so we see some hints here about where she is spiritually. She, she doesn't have a super strong faith, but it's enough faith in the right thing to know what to do next. Okay, so she had heard that Jesus is in town, so she goes to Jesus. All right, so that's where her faith shows up. But this likely also mixed in with some superstition. If it just touches clothes, like magic powers will come, you know. So it's likely mixed up with weird motives and all that, we all can relate to this because our faith goes up and down. We often have self-centered motives in coming to Jesus, right? I do. And so the, hopefully an encouragement here is this next principle, 
is that what counts is not how strong your faith is, but how strong the object of your faith is. If you have weak faith in the true Jesus, you're way better off than strong faith in a false Jesus, right? It's about Jesus, not how strong your grip is on him. He's got you. And you can um, lean into him, trust him. Verses 29 and 30, immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? So she touched him and she was healed. She knew it. Verse 32, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So when she was healed, did she start dancing around and praising the Lord and go, go into the temple courts and praising the Lord? A lot of the people who were healed by Jesus did that, rejoicing loudly, publicly. Look at Jesus. Look at what he did in my life. Did she do that? She hid she wanted to disappear. Okay, and this, this may be a little bit of an indication, too, of some of her, you know, I don't know. It's just hard to tell, right? The text doesn't tell us what's inside her heart as far as motives are concerned. But remember her story. She's used to disappointment. Shame had dominated her entire experience up to this point. Her sense of dignity and self-worth was so eroded that she couldn't imagine what it would be like to be seen, much less loved. Can, can you relate to that? I mean, all of us have shame that's deep down, and we don't want people to see the real me, right? All of us. And so she's wounded in her heart, and she can't imagine what it's like to be loved. So she just slinks away, disappears. You can imagine her saying to Jesus, don't mind me. You have better things to do. You have more important people to heal and deal with. I'm a nobody. You know, I'll just sort of slink back. So Jairus is trying to get Jesus to hurry up and come follow him to get to his daughter. This woman is saying to Jesus, Jesus, you need to hurry up in the other direction. Okay, hurry up and go do your other stuff. Don't pay attention to me. But do you see the goodness of Jesus here? He's not going to let us get away with just getting our healing and going. Okay, does that make sense? He's going to actually stop and turn around, look us in the eye, and face us and relate to us. He's going to do that because he's not just, you know, throwing out healings. He wants relationship. And so that leads to this next principle. Jesus loves us too much to let us see him as a cosmic vending machine. He slows everything down to give you his full, undivided attention, which, if you think about that, given the fact that he's a king and not just a teacher, that can be terrifying, but it's awesome. It's really, really good to have a love relationship with the king of the universe. That's terrifying and awesome. He tenderly calls the real you to show up so that you can have an intimate, life-giving relationship with him. And so third a surprising outcome. So we've seen this urgent request. We've seen Jesus throw, slow down and throw everything into a tizzy so he can love people well. And now we see a surprising outcome. 
Verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. So he's now at Jairus' house. And they go in. They came to the home. They saw the commotion. There's people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Now, and then they laughed at him. Why did they laugh? They knew she was dead. And he's saying, oh, no, no, no. She's just asleep. So what is Jesus doing here? Have you ever been in a museum or maybe seen a video of somebody walk, you know, uh, walking through a museum and they come on this exhibit and as they're approaching this exhibit, there's like this junk, scrap metal, plastic stuff kind of all strewn everywhere. Some of it's hanging on the back wall, some of it's on little pedestals in front of it, kind of scattered all through this exhibit. And then as the, the camera kind of pans over to a certain perspective, all that scrap metal and junk comes together into the, a portrait of a face. Have you seen this before, like videos of this? Kind of a cool idea for art. What Jesus is doing here is he's inviting these disciples, he's inviting us to see death from his perspective. He's inviting us to see our lives from his perspective. You know, our circumstances, life, family, work, just stress, anxieties, it can look like a lot of scrap metal laying around. Look like a Cracker Barrel restaurant, right? And yet, from Jesus' perspective, he is crafting a masterpiece of artwork in your life, and you can't see it until you get close to Jesus from where he can see. When Jesus looks at death, he sees sleep. He's so powerful that to Jesus, death itself is like sleep, right? He is so powerful. And so this principle... This fifth principle here, so the closer we get to Jesus, the more we see our lives and our stories as he sees them from the eternal perspective. And so this helps us with impatience. It helps us to slow down. And in all the things that are going on in our hearts with the anxiety and maybe even anger at times, we can slow down and trust him. And so he puts them all out. He takes the child's father and mother, disciples. He goes over by this little girl Look what he does. He takes her by the hand and says to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. That phrase in Aramaic, uh, it's hard to translate into English. It, it does literally mean little girl. But back then, this was a tender expression of a parent to a child waking up their child in the morning. It's like Jesus is saying, sweetheart, it's time to get up. Honey, let's rise and shine. He takes her by the hand and he, he's reaching through death and lifts her out of death with a simple touch and a morning greeting from, from like a dad or a mom. Isn't that powerful? Death is nothing to Jesus. It is nothing to him. And regardless of the anxiety that it caused Jairus, he was going to have his way and he was going to slow down for this woman who needed him, who had been suffering for 12 years. His agenda is not our agenda, right? He sees things that we can't see. His ways are not our ways. Can we trust him? Can we trust him? Now, I'd like to zoom out. Oh, I forgot something. So this next principle is that Jesus is so powerful that he sees death as sleep and resurrection as a parent's morning greeting. 
Jesus, this is so cool, Jesus uses the subtlety of his power to serve and love others rather than to entertain the masses. Did you notice too that when he lifted her out of death, he didn't like pan the camera to himself and take a selfie? Where was his focus? It was on the girl. He said, this little girl, she's hungry. Someone gets, he, he was concerned about feeding her and her being taken care of, right? He uses his power to bless, lift up others. And that's why sin is so insidious. Sin, you can define sin, not just as breaking the law. It is that. It's about being self-centered. Jesus demonstrates the gospel here by being other-centered with his power. I want to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. This story about Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman, you can think of this as a kind of microcosm or a little version of the whole gospel story. When the Messiah had arrived on the scene in those days, the Messiah had come. What were the Jews expecting him to do? Get into Jerusalem, kick out the bad guys, sit on his throne, establish righteousness, Usher in the kingdom of glory where all suffering and sin and tears and death and all is eradicated. Take care of business, Messiah. Let's go, right? That's what they were expecting. But instead of going to Jerusalem with a sword, he goes to a cross. So there's a sense in which the cross itself is like a delay from our perspective. It's a delay in the powerful, um, uh, restoring plan of God. We want Jesus to show up and take care of things. He slows down and dies on the cross. Do you see that? Do you see that? how that would have been so disorienting to those Jews in that day? Uh, you have the, the two uh, disciples who are walking on, on the road to Emmaus after his death. They were talking to each other. How could this have happened? We thought he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel and take care of things. And Jesus was kind of overhearing them from behind, right? That whole story. They were deeply, deeply disillusioned about who Jesus was and what his mission was about. If you're a believer in Jesus, there's, there was a time when you were spiritually sick, even dead. The Bible describes us that way spiritually. We're just like the woman, just like the little girl. On the cross, our sin touched Jesus, and he became unclean. We touched the robe of Jesus on the cross, and he was ostracized. He lost his friends. He lost his life and his dignity and his worth. He was treated terribly. He took the place of the suffering woman. Remember when it said that she touched his cloak and power went out from him? When our sin touched him on the cross, how was his power visibly manifested? The sun was darkened, earthquakes, rocks were split, temple curtain torn in two. There were visible echo effects of power leaving him. This is a picture of the substitutionary atonement of God. We're the unclean ones. He was treated as, as if uh, he was the sinner, as if he was the unclean one, so that we could be made whole, so that we could be cleaned and brought into the family. And, and he, when he turns to that woman and says, you know, your, your faith has made you well, he doesn't just say, you know, woman, your faith has made you well. He says, daughter. So he doesn't just tolerate us. He cleans us up and he brings us into the family. 
We now have a father. We have brothers and sisters. We have the church. So salvation is about trusting that, seeing that, trusting that, embracing that. He was punished for us. His life, the righteousness that he earned in his earthly life is given to us as a free gift. That's the cleanness of Jesus credited, credited to us. Salvation happens when the Holy Spirit reaches down through death and takes our hand and, and lifts us out like a, a parent does, lifts us out of death. He gives us a new heart. He indwells us. He helps us to fight sin, to live for him. We have forgiveness of our sins. If you're not sure where you are spiritually or you, know, you haven't trusted this Jesus, I invite you to do that. Um, he's done it all for you. There's no work involved. There's just receiving. And uh, he touches us that way. And I want to wrap up by uh, reading a text that actually talks about the slowness of God and the differing perspectives of this slowness. This is out of 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9. The Apostle Peter says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you see it? He's good. Last principle, what we think of God's slowness is actually God's way of saving us, of maturing us, and redeeming the world for his glory and our good. Hang in there, friends. Let's pray together.